We are concluding our study uh, in this month of December in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And if you'd say, boy, that's an interesting choice, because I haven't been here the last few weeks on Christmas. Um, Is that a Christmas story? I think you'll see in a way it is. The book of Ruth, you find it in the middle, very first part, I should say, of your Old Testament. You want to open up to Ruth chapter 4. In this series titled Ruth, the Gospel, I should say, according to Ruth, this Old Testament character. The book of Ruth, as I have said before, those of you who have been here or are familiar with it, is in one way a love story. Uh, and this love story in the fourth chapter where we'll read from this morning concludes with a marriage and even the birth of a child. And this marriage and this birth of a child will serve to reverse the hopelessness that, and desperation that started this story. If you remember, these two widows who come back after 10 years of famine to the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. There is bread once again. There's a harvest once again in the town, little town of Bethlehem. And they come back, but they're very desperate. But in this short book and in the times that uh, take the time it takes to uncover fold these events there's a reverse reversing of the hopelessness of this family there's a reversal of the hopelessness really of the entire nation of Israel which is why this book is in the Bible and you might say the fate of um, the entire world as we'll see in a minute Ruth chapter 4 we're in the sort of diving into the end of this story Chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 6, and then 9 through 17. Follow along as I read. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it. And in uh, in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead man with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, hmm then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among the family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. 
Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. So the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman Women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this story, little story, four little chapters tucked here in the early history books of the Old Testament is a bridge. And it bridges the, the, the grand story of Israel between two eras, right? Why is this book here? Okay. Between the time when Israel was a federation of tribes, you may remember the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they, between the time there are this group of federation of tribes living in the land of Canaan, and they become a monarchy or a nation with a king, right? Who's the last name that we just read. This is teeing up to the great King David, of whom Ruth and Boaz are their, his grandparents, okay? And not so many generations later, right, under Boaz's and Ruth's great-great-grandson named Solomon, the nation of Israel, which was here a federation of tribes, becomes not only a monarchy, but they become the envy of the world, right? Now, you think about the last, you know, four, five thousand years, right? There are a lot of people groups, right, you know, that have come and that have gone. And the nation of Israel, right, after, through it all, um, still remains standing today, partly because of what happened in this story. But these events, right, did not happen without the, create, the courageous and selfless acts of its central characters. And this is where the lesson comes, I think, for you and me. God uses ordinary lives to do extraordinary things, right? It's really the Christmas story too, right? God uses ordinary lives to do extraordinary things. I had mentioned this before, but this history, okay? The history out of which this small little story comes, the history of the, of the book of Judges or the, or the era of Judges, between Israel's you know, nation of coming out of the land of Egypt and going into the promised land and eventually having a king and a monarchy under David, under Solomon, under the other kings. They lived in a, in a, in a difficult period. It lasted almost 400 years. 
and it was called the period of the judges, and it was summarized many times in the, in the book of Judges, but in the very last verse of the book of Judges, I'll mention it again, it said this, in those days Israel had no king, right? This is what they want you to know. That it was kind of like a, it was the wild, wild west of Israel. It was where, you know, people were, were, were living without a lot of organization, without any real hierarchy, without any real government, right? It says Israel was without a king, and they were supposed to learn something there, right? Because in a way, the only reason Israel went to a monarchy, if you know the story of the Old Testament, was in a way they wanted to be like the other nations around them. See, God was their king, Right? Throughout many of the, from Abraham on, for hundreds and hundreds of years, as the nation of Israel came into being, God was their king. They followed the pillar of fire. They, fo- they followed the cloud that led them through the wilderness. God and his, his word and his spirit, he was their king. They said, we want to be like the other people around us. So God gave in, right? But, but for a season, they, before God gave them the king, they just wanted to run their own lives, they said, God, thank you for getting us out of Egypt, but we'll take it from here. Right? In those days, Israel had no king, which also meant they were not following the God who had delivered them. Right? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's in the context of that 400 years of, of very difficult um, history that the, um, as a relief, you're supposed to see the behaviors of Ruth and Boaz sort of um, stand forth. They demonstrate a very different kind of behavior. It stands out, right? Their selfless behavior. They're serving other people, not serving themselves. They made a choice, right? Not to be like everyone else around them who decided they were going to do what was ever in their own best interests, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't do that, right? Now, what's the backstory? You know this if you've been here. It's a simple story, but it's, in some ways it's universal. It's the story of, a, of very hard times, right? National hard times is a famine. And the story opens up with, with two women who have both lost their husbands. And in this culture, to lose your husband isn't just a personal tragedy, it's a socioeconomic tragedy. And they are without any kind of means. They're desperate. In fact, when the book opens up, there's bread, there's bread now in Bethlehem. She's coming back to her hometown, but they have no money, they have no means, and they're more or less begging for food in fields, picking up the scraps or the leftover sheaves not picked up by the harvesters. It's about a family in hard times, and in that sense, this story is not that unique, right? Lo, these 2,100 uh, years later, or that is to say, in, you know, or more in our day, we have people who um, are suffering and are desperate, not only in the world, but even in our own city. But what is unique about this story is in this culture, there is no social security system. You know, there's no open door mission. There's no uh, united way. And the only way people are helped in desperate situations like this, at least in the Jewish culture, is there is a provision that was made. Okay? That's what he talked, when he uses these terms, you know, or, uh, Boaz says, listen, 
I want the guardian redeemer comes walking by and he says, listen, friend, I want to sit down with these elders. I want to have a conversation. The guardian redeemer, that's a technical term. In one word, the word in the, in the Hebrew, it's the, it's the term goel. And essentially the guardian redeemer was a close relative, right? And it's outlined in the Old Testament. So listen, people will come on hard times. And when people come on hard times, whether that's they lost their job or they lost their property, they might have lost their dignity, they might have to be a slave, they may have lost something. Maybe they've lost their husband. Maybe they've lost their children who are actually the ones who work the fields because it's an agricultural society. But when they lose something, there are people designated in this culture called the guardian redeemer who have to make a choice, right? They're given the responsibility because of their relationship, right, the close relative, to be able to say, no, I'm not going to buy that couch. I'm not going to buy that car, right? I'm going to make a different decision, and I'm going to instead spend this money to help make up a need to redeem, to bring back, to do my best to help set this person back up and get them back on their feet, okay? That's what the guardian redeemer does. That's what this story is about. That's what's taking place in this final chapter. Now, in this case, it's a pretty tall order, because this woman has not only lost her land, um, they've lost, um, she's, not only has to, she's not only trying to redeem her land, but she's, she's carrying around this daughter-in-law who's also lost her husband. So Boaz sets this up, the guardian redeemer. He says, listen, friend, I want you to know something. I don't know if you've heard, but this woman has come back in town, and you are the closest relative and I want you to go ahead and take your responsibility to be the guardian redeemer. And the guy says, listen, go in peace. I'm going to do this. I'm in, right? He says, listen, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. He says, okay, I want you to do it. Now, at first, he's in. But then he says, listen, um, uh, there's a widow involved. And if you, if you go ahead and repurchase the land, then you're also going to have to marry the widow. And then he changes his mind, right? And he's trying to teach us something about the character of Boaz in this chapter. See, when he first wants to take the land, what happens in this culture is this. If he buys the land back for this woman, he knows that she's um, not going to have any more kids. She's, a, she's an older woman. She's a grandmother age already. And he says, listen, this is a smart business move for me. If I buy this land... And, no one, and there are no heirs to take over this land, that's what the Old Testament says, then that land would revert to his estate. So it's, it's, it's on, on the surface, it's sort of a nice gesture. I will redeem it. But he knows. See, the land ultimately, the, the, the value of the land is in the crops, you see. And there's bread in Bethlehem now. And now everything's turned back on. The tap's turned back on in a series of years, Right? This woman will live five years, ten years, however long she lives. Eventually, that land will revert back to his estate. And this gesture, what seems like a good gesture, is really a good business deal. He says, listen, I'll do it. But when he finds out, right, that along with this land, she, there's also a daughter-in-law. And so you've got to take the daughter-in-law as well. He's kind of melding two laws here in your Old Testament. There's the guardian redeemer, which is about land. And there's the Leverite marriage, which is about marrying the widow of someone um, who's lost their son, like a close relative, to take on that family name. When he finds out that this is also a part, he says, oh, I don't want to do that, right? 
because that will damage my estate. At this, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it. Why? It might endanger my own estate. In other words, I'm going to invest some money to get this one back on her feet. But over the course of time, if there's a child born to this widow, Ruth, ultimately what it says, the land does not revert to him. That land stays in the name of her dead husband, right? So why do I say that? It's to make the point of the size of what's going on here, right? In God uses ordinary lives to do extraordinary things. Boaz, when he says, listen, I'll do this if you won't, he's not doing it to feather his own nest, right? I have also acquired, this is what Boaz says, after he says, listen, I'll do it. The guy says, I'm out. I don't want that kind of responsibility. I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead man with his property. Listen, so that his name, the dead man, right? Her first husband, Malon, will not disappear from among his family and his hometown, right? He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for her, right? This is an amazing thing. And this is really the challenge, I think, to you and me. When I first came here, Browncroft, this was... You know, this could have been 10 years ago, okay? And there was a couple in this church, uh, um, husband and wife, and they went on a vacation with another couple from this church. But along this vacation, there was a third couple that was a friend of, their, of, the, of this other couple that they didn't know. And while they were on this vacation, this woman the, uh, from the first couple, she got to know, just sitting at the beach, this new woman uh, that was the friend of the friend, over the course of seven days. And she found out in the course of that one vacation that that woman had a um, kidney disease. And it was a hereditary kidney disease. She'd already lost one of her kidneys. The other one was compromised. She was on dialysis. Her, her future was sort of a, you know, uncertain. And that was it, right? She had, you know, asked her some questions, found out, you know, she'd already gone through the list of her relatives, hadn't found a match yet. She wasn't at death's door, but, you know, her, her, her days were numbered unless she found a kidney. Now, this woman came back, thought about it, prayed about it, got a test, and decided to give her kidney to this woman. The woman didn't ask her to do it. She wasn't a relative. Had absolutely nothing to do. It was a circumstantial um, vacation trip. And she decided that's what she was going to do. And she did it, right, <laughs> 10 plus years ago. And uh, as far as I know, they, that couple moved south a couple years ago. Both of those uh, families are doing well today. And I'll tell you something. I've never forgotten that, right? Jody, if you're listening, I've never forgotten that, you know. What an amazing um, thing to do, to give somebody back in a sense, their life through a personal sacrifice that you made. That's what we're talking about, right? That's what we're talking about. That's really what this man is doing. It's really what Ruth did for her mother-in-law in chapter one. God uses ordinary lives to do extraordinary things. That's the truth of this book. That's the challenge of this book. And the question for you and me is this, right? How are you using your time? How about your money, right, or your resource to help someone in need? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's even a stranger, right? And in many cases, nobody will ever know it. But God knows it. 
And what you see in this story, what sounded like really a kind of a nice word or maybe even a cliche, may the woman the Lord brings into you build up this family. May you be famous in Bethlehem. Let me tell you something. He does become famous in Bethlehem, right? We're talking about him 2,500 or 3,000, I should say, years later because through this marriage, right, comes a child named Boaz who has a child named Jesse who has a child named David who's the great king of Israel, okay? God uses ordinary lives to do extraordinary things. Second thing this passage tells us is there is no life that is beyond God's reach, right? That's why this book is here. There is no life that is beyond. Think about this for a minute. This book is called Ruth for a reason. This woman, as the story starts, is in a desperate situation that is she's widow and she has no means of income. They're, 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 they're in the beginning of this book, she goes out, um, her mother-in-law perhaps is a little, you know, uh, um, is older, and, and so Ruth's the one that goes out and sort of to try to gather food, right? Her mother-in-law just sort of sits home. So Ruth is out there. She has no means. She's not Jewish. She's from sort of a despised people group, and she goes out there to try to just survive and get some food in what amounts to about a year or two, less than two years in the history of this book, now it's said of Ruth the Moabite, may she be like Rachel and Leah, right? Who are Rachel and Leah? I don't know if we have an equivalent of that in our culture, but Rachel and Leah were the two most famous women in the history of Israel. They were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They were Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. It's like saying, I don't know, may she be like, you know, uh, Susan B. Anthony and, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Dor Dorothy Day. I don't know, I don't know if we have the equivalent. But it's, it's an outrageous statement to say about this woman in the course of two years. And here's the funny thing, or not the funny thing, the amazing thing. This woman, right, may she be like Rachel and Leah, who, who two years earlier was, was, was a, was a no-name, was, 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 was someone who was despised, someone who was, was in jeopardy, right? Because of who she was, Boaz said to her when he first met her, he said, listen, I want you to do this, I want you to stay here, I want you to stay close to these women, and I'm going to tell the men around here not to violate you, Right? Because you're open season because of who you are. You're a nobody. You're person non grata in the town of Bethlehem because you're a Moabite, right? Because of who you are. And in two years, she not only does make, as I said, you know, all these years later, her, her now husband Boaz famous, but here's something much more, right? Because, you know, there is no life that is beyond God's reach. She ends up, why, am I, why, am I, why are you teaching the book of Ruth, uh, Rob, in the month of December? She ends up with five other women, okay, a thousand years later in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to go there. You can read it. Maybe we'll do it Tuesday night. I don't know. But it's a thousand. Now, in, in the genealogies in the, in the Bible, Old Testament and New, okay, of course, women are involved in the procreation of children, but they're always named by the father. It's a patriarchal society. But for some reason, okay, I think 
God and the Holy Spirit had something to do with it. In the genealogy of Jesus Christ, of which there are tons of names, right? Maybe 50, 60, I haven't counted them. It's a lot of names, okay? It goes from Abraham all the way. There are five women named, right? I think they're making a point. One of them is Ruth. Another one they mention here in verse 12. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, most of us read that and go, who are those people? Okay. Tamar is one of the other four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So obviously the writer's making a point. And let me tell you what's true of those two women. Okay? In fact, it's true of all four of them except for Mary, right? who's the mother of Jesus. But of these two people, they were the wrong sex. In other words, in this culture. right? They were from the wrong background. Right? Tamar as well as Ruth. But both of them, because of their faith, changed the course of history, right? It's the extreme case because it's trying to make a point. There is no life that is beyond God's control, right? That is beyond God's reach, I should say. Anybody, right, who's open to the promises of God, anybody that is open, no matter what your background, no matter how far you feel like you have gone from the things of God, no matter how much you might feel unwelcomed, right, in the things of God, that's who Ruth was, she was completely unwelcome. She was not a part party of the promises of God. Nevertheless, she ends up in this story having a major uh, part in the purposes of God. She says, may you be like Rachel and Leah. And if that isn't enough, under the providence of God, she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now here, Ruth, you might say, Right, the grandmother uh, of, or the great grandmother of King David, she kind of kicks, uh, 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 opens up the door, right? Because in this history, it, the, the, the the promises of God are for Jewish people. She kind of shows that God had always had in mind the whole world, right? Abraham was the father of many nations. She opens up the door, but a thousand years later, right? Jesus Christ kicks the door all the way open. And one of the central messages of this book is the central message of the gospel, which is no life is beyond God's reach. Whatever your background, whatever your deprivation might be, right? Whatever is your story, there's a place at God's table. And what it says to the Christians in this room, to you and to me if you're a Christian, is that you need to take hold of God's promises and you need to act on them because God still does extraordinary things through ordinary people. Lastly, God is redeeming the world one life at a time. One life at a time. This is really Ruth's story, okay, the book of Ruth. But it ends where it begins with the woman who starts it and that is Naomi, right? It ends with Naomi. Naomi says at the beginning of this book, I want you to think about this. Put yourself in this position. You're supposed to. I'm supposed to. You're supposed to think about what does this book teach me about God? And Naomi's at the beginning of this book, this is what she says. She's lost her husband's husband. She's lost both of her sons. She's now um, um, financially destitute. And she comes back into Bethlehem 
And all the people remember her because her husband, I think, was perhaps a wealthy man at one time. And they say, look who's back. It's Naomi. She goes, do not call me Naomi. I went away full. In other words, I had two, a husband and two sons. I had means. And I've come back empty. I'm bitter and the Lord is my enemy. God is against me. He's my adversary. That's what she thought. Okay? But here's the interesting thing, what this book tells us. The very opposite was true, right? She felt to her bones, right, that God had abandoned her, that she was under the, um, in some ways, the, 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 the judgment of God or at least the displeasure of God. She was mad at God, and she said, everything I have in life has been taken from me, right? But the, think about it. When she said those words, God was actually already engineering um, a turnaround in her life because the person that she was very um, um, almost invisible in her life, or she was oblivious to Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, God had put her in her life, and this woman would change the course of everything in a very short period of time, right? Think about it, right? He brought her back to Bethlehem, not to harm her, but to bless her. Death and emptiness, which is what she said was what she had at this time, right? Really became life and fullness. And not only that, this story isn't just about what Ruth and Boaz do. Verse 13, the Lord enabled her to conceive, okay? There's some things that only God can do. Remember that part of the reason... They're so desperate here. Part of the reason the guardian redeemer not only needs to buy the land, but needs to father a child is because for 10 plus years, Ruth was, was unable to conceive, right? She was married for 10 years before they came back to Bethlehem. And one, one of the ma- many themes, I suppose, in the, in, the, in the scriptures of barrenness, it was also true of her. But the Lord, verse 13 enabled her to conceive. Now see, this this book is partly about, no question, scholars would say this, it's about, as I said, it's telling us something about the transition from the era of the tribes of Israel to the monarchy of the king. It ends with the name of David, who becomes a central figure in the scriptures, of course. But God does not drop things from the sky. That's not how he works, right? God doesn't, he, he works his purposes. He brings about his purposes. He matures his purposes through people. And in many cases, the more desperate, the better, right? The more desperate, the better. Ruth, Naomi, were the most desperate of people. And God says, listen, let me show you my power. Let me show you my glory. I'm gonna take these people, one of who's a bitter uh, angry woman, one of who is a despised Moabite, and through them, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. It's the same thing that happens in Christmas. You say, why did God choose a um, people from um, Galilee? Why did God choose um, Joseph and Mary, who were so poor, they had to bring turtle doves as their offering when you have a child. They didn't even have enough money to bring the normal sacrifice. Why does God do that? Because that's where he does his best work, right? God does extraordinary things through 
ordinary people. And God is still at work in the world. He's still doing amazing things in people's lives. But sometimes the process seems slow from our vantage point. But gradually and definitely, God is at work to bring us back. Let me say this. If you doubt that at all, okay, let me give you a little teaser uh, for Christmas Eve. We're going to share a story. I hope you come back. Maybe not at four, but no, I'm just kidding. You can come back at four, too. But uh, we're going to share a story at Christmas Eve, okay, of an ordinary person, right? An ordinary um, um, family that God has completely restored and redeemed. And I think it will encourage you and perhaps even inspire you about what God can do in your life and he can do in my life still today. Amen? Uh, Let us pray. God and Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for everyone in this room this morning. We thank you for the heart of the Christmas story, which is redemption. It's really what you are doing, Lord, in this world. You sent your son in here to begin something. And as he grew up and spoke the words of God, announced the kingdom of God, and then opened that kingdom, kicked down that door in his death and resurrection, Lord, you are calling people back to you one person at a time. I just pray for us, Lord, even as we sit in this room this morning. Help us, wherever we find ourselves this morning, to know more your love, your grace, your voice. You know, my sheep hear my voice. Help us to hear your voice this morning, Lord, to come back or to come to you, maybe for the first time, to experience your grace, you experience your love, to be open to your um, blessings in our lives. God, we we love you, we thank you, and we uh, just pray you would do something amazing, even through us as a church this Christmas. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that you would um, speak your words of grace, you would call them deeper into a relationship with you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last thing before I send you out here this morning, two things. One, hopefully see you Christmas Eve. Also, Jason, I don't know where he is. Jason and I and a few others will be, uh, we got invited to come to the um, Rochester Holiday. Is that what it's called? Rochester? Rock. Rock Holiday Village. There it is. So we're going to be a part of that uh, between 2 and 3 o'clock today. So we'll see you there. We'll see you Christmas Eve. Have a great Sunday.